Welcome to Know Your Options, the Measured Risk Podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. All right, well, this is uh, the Know Your Options podcast. I'm Larry Kriesmer. I'm here with my partner, Bernard Sarofsky. And our guest today is Doug Herring. He's with Money Concepts, a big national firm. And we're here to chat today about uh, Doug and his his practice and how he's gotten into the business and learn more about it. So welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks. I appreciate it, both of you. Yeah, so let's start out with just a little background on how you got into financial services as an advisor. Right. Well, thanks. It's a, it's a really good question for me because I spent about 40 years as a DIY investor back in the days when the, the only way you could get information is, you know, having subscriptions to almost every, right. <laughs> you know, magazine or journal out there. And then about three years ago, I was I was in accounting and finance, mostly corporate accounting and finance, budgeting, long-term forecasting, fractional CFO work. And had a little cancer scare a few years ago, decided to per- pursue my passion. I've always loved helping either coworkers or family members or colleagues, you know, think about retirement planning or, you know, how to buy a house and financing and all those kinds of things and decided to put it into practice. So got got licensed Series 65 and Series 7 and a few other letters behind my name and kind of went from there. Yeah, I saw on the, I uh, did a little, the broker check that if anybody's familiar with that, everybody in the business is familiar with <laughs> right, this. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I saw that you've been licensed relatively um, recently. And so it makes sense that you've been in some sort of advisory capacity in your role as a CPA. Yeah. And then uh, I've so had insurance licenses for about seven years. So I see. Doing okay. some life and, you know, using that in different ways. But. Right, starting there. So what, uh, what was the first? I mean, I know Bernard. I think you were seventeen or something when you bought your first stock. Is that? Yeah, I was actually thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There you go. All I, I, I was a little bit later to the game, but early yeah. baptism. But uh, how about you, Doug? When did you first start doing investing on your own? Well, the first uh, thing that I remember is back when I was about eighteen. I got my first sort of real job. It was part time while I was in college, but it was with a large corporation, and so. They had, you know, various investment options as part of the retirement plan. And so that's when I kind of, you know, as an accounting geek, and I like that term, so I use it affectionately. But, you know, I was, you know, I had taken some finance classes, but, you know, not enough to really feel like I was doing what I knew what I was doing. So started looking at the market, investigating the market, because I think maybe it's the nature of being an accountant. Protection was my first priority. But as an 18-year-old, I quickly realized that, you know, if you're investing in, of course, interest rates in the early 80s were (laughs) sky high. But, you know, I quickly realized that investing in money markets at age 18 wasn't very smart. And so I needed to start doing some homework. And that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, interesting. You know, my first, I don't think I've ever shared this with you, Bernard, but my first investment, I was actually doing outbound calls for a Dean Witter advisor 
and uh, opened up the money that I was earning and bought a mutual fund, paid my five and three quarter percent uh, front end load. Mm -hmm. And then promptly as a young kid needed the money about, you know, four (laughs) weeks later (laughs) and uh, got my first taste of a a CDSC or (laughs) deferred sales charge. So that was my, you know, getting my introduction to investing was a whole little difference, but I think you experienced it pretty better than mine. I do remember one other story, if you don't mind. Um, I do remember because I remember my dad introduced me to his broker. So now that you talk about paying commissions on your, you know, initial purchases, which of course is unheard of these days, pretty much. Yeah. My, uh, my dad's broker recommended I put a few thousand dollars in Ford back in, I think again, it was like 1978 or something like that. So I don't remember that was before or after I was 18. I think I think after though. So that was my first actual stock pur- purchase. Yeah. But that is not a recommendation to buy Ford. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it's funny how we all remember our first stock. Mine was a gold mine and uh, uh, it, it ended up not so well. <laughs> that oh, was a good baptism. Okay. It was a good learning curve. Well, I think right. even Fenra would say it would be a good thing if you could go back to 1978 and buy a couple of shares of Ford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, would, that wouldn't hurt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the past is the past. We can't go back and yeah, we can't go back and rewrite that. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about you know. Do you have any mentors or any people or you know things that you've used to go on the way to come up with recommendations about you know how you put together portfolios for clients? Yeah. So I mean, in terms of mentors, interest enough. My very well, I guess it wasn't my very first boss, but my very first boss in sort of more of a corporate financial planning role was a PhD from in economics from Colorado School of Mines. And he had got his PhD when he was like 22 or 23 years old. So he's relatively smart guy, recently retired from Comcast is one of the top, I don't know how much of this I should say actually, but as one of the top sort of 20 executives in the corporation. So, you know, relatively bright guy. And so he and I used to get in early and chat almost every morning the other piece of that is as a boss, he always had subscriptions to just about every financial journal out there, and he would pass them around the office. We had a team of about five financial planners. So that was my first mentor. And of course, I was, I think I was 23 or 24 when I took that job. So relatively early in my investment, you know, mm-hmm. thinking. Um, in terms of after that, I don't know that I had any real true mentors after that. I mean, currently at Money Concepts, you know, I'm working with a team of people where <laughs> I think uh, 20, I think 20 years is the minimum the rest of the people on my team have. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're all, um, even though I know a lot, they're all mentors in terms of if I have difficult cases or something odd comes up, you know, they they know just what to do, or at least they have good advice of where to get started, you know, but, but a lot of what happened, I mean, I think I left that position with that gentleman I talked about when I was about 30 years old, plus or minus. And really after that, I had been with him for, you know, plus or minus six years. And I think I learned a lot, I you know, and I read just everything I could get my hands on. And I think that was the start. And then just Again, trying to keep up periodically after that. I mean, I think one of the things he taught me, which we all should do, is just continuously read, continuously research because things change and markets change. And of course, I don't know that a lot prepared us for 2000 and 2008, but you know, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you had, you know, you, we started this conversation with the idea that you kind of knew about protection. Maybe talk about that a little bit more. What What do you mean by that? Or what's, what's important about uh, protection or, I don't know, maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll just leave it at that. Oh, yeah, we could we could go a long time talking about protection, right? Because we could talk about insurance products and things that people ought to have in their life, which people don't always think about as part of their investment life. And I guess it's not part of their investment life, but it is part of their financial life, right? So just basic things like life insurance and other types of insurance to protect against, you know, big losses that that could be catastrophic and make your investing success um, kind of go away. But no, what, what I meant was, um, you know, when I first started investing, like I met, I mentioned money market, you know, funds and things like that. I was really big on like, oh, gosh, you know, I've got to make sure this this money's, you know, in U.S. government securities. And again, like I said, at that age, I realized, you know, pretty quickly, fortunately, within a few months that that was not the right way to think about protecting my assets as an 18 or 20 year old, 20 year old you know, because obviously that can completely limits the upside, right? So uh, pretty soon after that, you know, just thinking about asset allocation and what's appropriate and, and you know, of course, traditionally, right, we think cash, bonds, stocks, right? I mean, that's the, you read most stuff and that's what people talk about. But, you know, and, and especially as the mutual fund industry changed, you know, all of a sudden you've got access to a little bit of real estate markets or or potentially uh you know hard assets or or commodities in mutual funds and things like that so i guess you know diversification is not a perfect solution to protection obviously but you know at least a little bit of protection on the downside when the stock market you know stops or you know drops and i think the other thing that I'd say about protection, especially today, is, you know, you mentioned that you all work with options models. I mean, there's ETFs and funds out there that that do maybe similar to what you all do, maybe not exactly the same way. But in, in that, you know, even more and more, I start thinking about things like annuities, especially as as I get more and more of this white hair, you know, that mm-hmm. lifetime, you know, exactly. lifetime income protection. So that's. That may be a too long of an answer, but you know, there's a lot. Bernard, of- why don't you why don't you delve into the, the idea because we we have some pretty, uh, let's say, outside the box thinking on diversification and sure. asset allocation. So, Bernard, yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's interesting because you, know, you were mentioning the list of various assets and you mentioned you know stocks and bonds and you know, real estate and what have you, but. I always marvel at the fact that people don't generally include options in the word asset allocation. It seems to be like the the one asset class which I personally believe is the most predictable in how it's going to behave when you expect it to behave the way you want it to behave, meaning you know an option will go to the value you expect it to go to if you know what what the underlying is going to do. Do you have any thoughts about why there's not more kind of understanding of of using that type of asset more broadly, or do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have. This might say some negative things about the advising profession, but I think, you know, I mean, my opinion is that, you know, there's a large investment company uh, who has said that the licensing exams are too difficult. I I think in some ways it may be just the opposite. And so the short answer to your question, I think a lot of advisors really don't understand math. I'm a math geek. So 
I, I mean, I'm not an expert in options in any way, but I understand the math behind it. I understand the concepts. I think there's a lot of advisors that just maybe they understand it a little bit conceptually, but but maybe it scares them. So I, I think that's probably part of it. Yeah, I think my, my experience, I got my Series 7, I don't remember now, 1992, three years ago. <laughs> right. uh, it's, it's been a, many, many years ago. And I remember pretty clearly, though, that it felt like 30 to 40% of the exam was uh, options-driven. Yeah. You've just recently taken the Series 7, right? Yeah, I don't remember exactly, but it was earlier this year, right? Yeah, right. So I mean, it's real. And is that still the case? Is that is it pretty option it's still heavy? Still pretty heavy into options. And so here's uh, here's what was fascinating for me. I think what was fascinating for me is that okay, I'm, I was with a big insurance firm at that point. That's where I was being brought up into the business, and mm-hmm. I passed the exam. It's all heavy options. I'm kind of interested in how this would work and how to apply it to the practice. And I'm basically told by my supervisor, "No, no, no, we don't really do options here. Yeah. We don't really want to do that." So, I think it it does kind of just boil down to some sort of uh, impression or thought by the supervisory uh, sort of the yeah. the, the, the the risk and control group that options are maybe too, too spicy or too dicey. Well, I mean, it's, it, you know, to, to your point, that you made earlier, which is, you know, the education, we were with a firm, you know, where the supervisor couldn't actually get to pass. I mean, you know, one of the challenges we had was that our supervisor didn't quite understand the options thing himself. And so it became something where, yeah. you know, we were precluded from using them because our supervisor couldn't, Pass the exam. Yeah. Pass the the options principles. Yeah. 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 So we weren't allowed to use them. And we're like, uh, come on. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I think the, um, I mean, to your point, I mean, that's a good point. And I do think it maybe, I don't know if it confirms my suspicion or not, but, but I just think, you know, in general, let's just admit it, Americans just aren't very good at math as a population. And so, Options to yeah. math, right? You have to yeah. not only understand the underlying asset, you know, that takes a lot of analysis. Well, you would know better than I how much analysis it takes, but, you know, you have to understand the under underlying asset. You know, let's just say we're, we're only trading options in stocks for now. Um, you know, you have to understand, obviously, something about that stock and where it's going, whether that's technical analysis or, or you know, just looking at the business and understanding you know, that sort of more of a business analysis, but, you know, let me step back from that for just a minute, pick a strike price, you know, I mean, it gets, and I think, you know, I, I don't envy you in the sense that, you know, your clients somehow you, they either have to really trust you, right. Because it's unlikely your clients understand options too well, or you have to do a lot of education into this is, this is why we do what we do. This is how it works. Um, this is how we choose thing. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you don't have to explain every single transaction you do. That would be untenable. No. But, yeah, um, exactly. Well, I think I think what's interesting maybe in the option space is that let's just step back and think about just traditional portfolio construction because we are sort of, I mean, well, we're, Doug, we're trained on it. What is that doing in terms of the portfolio? Like, Doug, tell us a little bit about how how you build a portfolio for someone. You know, I walk in as you know, Mr. Prospect or Mr. Right, we'll take a traditional fifty-year-old person, yeah. half a million-dollar portfolio, yeah. one hundred and fifty thousand-dollar income, saving you know maximum in the four hundred one k plan. Sure, you know, reasonably moderately to a moderately aggressive risk tolerance at this stage in his life. What, what does that look right. like to you? And I think at a fifty-year-old, that's that's a great example, right? Because they're within that 
what I would say, depending on when they plan to retire or if they plan to retire, makes a difference for me and how I would, you know, suggest they mm-hmm. build that retire that that portfolio, right? Because if they plan on working till they're seventy five, like you know, people that enjoy what they do, and in, in our field, I know people in that category. Yeah, you know, or if they're planning on retiring early at sixty, you know, I mean, so uh, so time horizon makes a big difference to me, right? Because volatility in the stock market goes two ways, right? And so yeah. the longer you have, the better chances you are of the volatility helping you on the upside. But the shorter your time horizon, the higher the probability that a downturn, you know, just something like sequence of returns risk. So yes. somebody's doing their constant 4% withdrawal. So, you know, that's the first thing I do is I would talk to the client, determine their you know, how much risk do they really want to take? How much flexibility do they have in their retirement date? But in terms of, you know, what we talked about earlier is downside protection. I don't personally trade options. I don't feel I'm as competent as I would like to be. Um, So if somebody needs that kind of protection, we usually look at, as long as they're comfortable with it, things like hedged or buffer ETFs, uh, which... You know, and, and as you know, I mean, a lot of buffered ETFs, how do they how do they buffer? Well, they're options traders, right, for the most part. And so they're probably doing something very similar to what you're doing, I'm guessing, um, because as you said, you know, options are relatively predictable. And if you know what you're doing and, you know, that's part of the way they can not necessarily guarantee, but, you know, set a buffer at, let's say, yeah. 10% downside is they with a certain amount of accuracy, they know that they can trade options in such a way that, you know, that they can, like I said, not guarantee, but at least put that as a standard in a, you know. Yeah, target. I think target yeah, might be a bit exactly. You know, yeah. Well, I think let's talk about if we have, um, a, do you do a lot of individual stock selection or is it more ETFs? I or don't do like to, I, I actually, so the funny thing is I do a lot of individual stock selection for myself, but that's largely, largely due to my financial position and kind of anyway, my financial situation, I don't really feel comfortable picking individual stocks for, mm-hmm. um, for it's clients public, just, just right. because I don't, I mean, if they have that appetite, then, you know, We'll discuss it, but mm-hmm. um, I'm not Warren Buffett. I don't pretend to be Warren Buffett. I mean, I'm. I, I feel like I, you know, understand about enough about stock picking to pick stocks for myself. But I don't know that I, you know, I also don't have a the track record that he does. So, um, so what what does a, a standard recommendation? You know, not cookie cutter necessarily, but sure, what, right. what are your go-to uh, arrows in your quiver when you look at an sure. application for a client? Um, you know, there there's a couple funds that I like, and and I won't name them exactly, but um, yeah, give me broad asset classes. Yeah, let's say. so there's there's a fund that I like. There's an ETF that I like. It's actually they're both by the same company in their um, bond and stock uh, sector rotation funds. So. Okay. You basically leave it to the asset manager, to, you know, oh, well, you know how they work. But for the for anybody listening that might not, I mean, you know, so let's say in the bond uh, market, they might, you know, have long term bonds, high yield bonds, short term bonds, and then they increase or decrease, 
you know, the percentage of assets based on what they think interest rates are going to do or what the bond market in general is going to do. So I like that a bit. I think they've in general, you know, for the most part shown that they can do better than just picking an aggregate bond fund. Many th- those funds don't have a lot of history, so I could be wrong in the long run. I hope not. Um, but the concept makes sense to me. And then for some people, uh, especially younger people, a lot of the asset allocation is uh, a high percentage. A lot of times, it's a, if they have the risk tolerance for it, it's a hundred percent, you know, stock ETFs. And sometimes it's as simple of a portfolio as you know, eighty percent in the S- an S and P five hundred ETF, and uh, you know, another ten or twenty percent in something like a Nasdaq ETF if they, mm-hmm. or or you know, maybe Russell two thousand if they want to, you know, go small stock, but something like that, you know, for, for older, you know, people more my age, um, you know, it might be more, you know, sort of a mix of buffered ETFs, some stock ETFs, and then, you know, one of those bond ETFs, something like that. And then generally I do try to recommend at least a certain percentage being, you know, something like a real estate ETF or a, um, I haven't experimented with covered call ETFs yet, but I think using the buffered ETFs kind of gives a flavor of at least, again, that downside protection with, with still at least a partial participation on the upside with the S&P 500. The, the one challenge I will note that I've had with clients is with something like a buffered ETF is they love the fact that they have a buffer on the bottom end, but they're if the market goes up, they're always complaining about why didn't, you know, the market went up 30%. I only got 16 and it's like, you know. Well, our, our approach here, just to sort of set the table yeah, is in, sure. in the namesake measured risk portfolios, our firm, we, we feel the same way. We want to be equity investors to get the opportunity. We don't have any assurance or any guarantee that the market's going to deliver any kind of strong returns. We just have to go on historical evidence that that's how it arrives. It doesn't right. it doesn't come at eight percent per year or ten percent per year yeah. or whatever long term average you're looking at for a long period of time. It comes in spits and furts and it goes in basically eighteen or twenty three or thirty one and then it loses fifty percent of its value or you know right. something like yeah. that. So what what we have observed is that you've got this engine that pistons up and down and it it seems to take a lot longer to piston up than it does to to piston down, right? And so the the losses when they come are not necessarily frequent, but they can be severe. And and they're only as bad as they've been. It doesn't mean that they couldn't be worse. And that's one of the things that keeps us up at night is, well, how bad do you think a stock market sell-off could be? You know, just because we had a let's say a 50 something percent decline during the 2008 debacle doesn't mean we can't get a new debacle that hits new lows and we lose 63% of the equity value. It's just, there's nothing stopping that from happening. So that's always been kind of our, our backdrop and the, and the part that makes us made us look for something else and and we couldn't find it. So we built it was the idea that even it's a 60, 40 portfolio where 60% of the client's portfolio is in equities. You know, if the if the market part, the equity part can drop 50%, you do the math, 60% right. of 50%, it's still going to bring your overall portfolio down 30%. Yeah. 
That's assuming right. that the bonds don't lose anything either. Yeah, that's right. assuming that the 40% that you own it holds on to its value. Now, if it, if it makes money during that period of time, then you know it's a, it's a win and it offsets the 30%. And, and, I, and again, Bernardine took this sort of idea that a lot, we were actually building portfolios yeah. very much like you're describing yeah. back in the 2000s, uh, early 2000s. And we used optimization software that put it onto the efficient frontier and trying to maximize what the rate of return is with the least amount of volatility. And these work great. They really do work well if you have assets that are going up and down independently of each other that you can always harvest and sell high, take those gains and buy the things that are currently depressed in value that you have an expectation they'll come back and go right. up in value and then you'll sell them and harvest gains and put them back into the you know, cycling uh, positions up and down. That That's the basis for this. But our kind of critical observation is that the this normalized returns that are happening under, let's say, normal market conditions can become really uncorrelated and can suddenly go to one so that the things you bought that you thought were independently moving uh, all start to decline at the same time, just maybe with a different speed to the downside. Yeah. Um, so that's the part that we're really frustrated with because when we have a client call in, they usually were calling in because they've already exceeded their loss threshold. Mm-hmm. You know, that's whatever market event was happening is is beyond what we thought could happen to their portfolio. And so they're calling in concerned and want to know, well, how much more do you think it's going to go down? Right. And it was literally, Bernard, just debilitating to not have a solid answer, yeah. you know, because really all we're able to do is go back and say, Gosh, well, historically, these portfolios that we built haven't declined more than this. And now we're, we're blazing new ground. We're, so we're hitting some new numbers. <laughs> and uh, we just hope it won't be any worse than, than where we are now. And that honestly, that's just not very confident and inspiring. And that's what kind of got our eyeballs looking at options. And I think if you, as an industry, if we don't focus on what options can do, then all we have left is asset allocation. I think that's the that's the big aha moment for us is that once we have a new tool, maybe we can solve the problem a little differently, yeah. or at least come come at it with a different set. Well, of I mean, solutions. Can, you know, how do you address the concern? Like, if you have a client who comes in, like, let's talk about March, you know, February, March, April time of this year, even where the markets were kind of having a ooh. Yeah. Um, how do you address those concerns, or did you find that your clients were already well prepared for that type of Behavior and you didn't get inundated with calls. I mean, how did that go? How did so that you work out? March of twenty twenty three, right? Yes, correct. Yes, um, I actually didn't have anyone concerned about March of twenty twenty three. Most 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 of the people I know are still talking about twenty twenty two. Okay. Uh, the fact that you know, as you said, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, this you know is the perfect storm, really, right? Because stocks mm-hmm. drop. As much well, depending on what dates you're using, plus or minus 25, 26%. And bonds, you know, an aggregate bond fund on average was down what 10 or 11% at, at least at some annual point in yeah. time. So, you know, even if you had a 60 40 portfolio or flipped it and did a 40 60 because you were trying to be a little more conservative, it still didn't, you know, you still lost 15% or some, you know, I, I'm I'm having right. trouble doing weighted averages right. in my head and talk at the same time, but that's fine. Um, but uh, <laughs> you're on track. You know, something like fifteen percent. So yeah, I mean, I know um, the best. Ex- well, I, I won't use that example because it's a family example. But you know, I mean, 
I have people still complaining about 2022. And I, you know, I think fortunately, you know, because, you know, because of the use, at least, you know, with older folks, because of using something like a buffered ETF rather than just a straight S&P 500, you know, uh, ETF, indexed ETF, you know, they didn't lose the 26% or whatever now. And, and I, because I don't, usually use a lot of just aggregate bond funds with, you know, with knowing that interest rates will be increasing. I, you know, I tended to go a little more short term. Now they still lost money, but not nearly as much as, you know, say a longer term bond yeah. fund, mm-hmm. although with the yield curve anyway, um, with the yield curve inverting there for a while, that was a little bit interesting. Um but yeah, like I said, 2023 isn't been a problem. But yeah, I mean, I think your point about, you know, does apply to 2022, right? I mean, something yes. besides a bond stock allocation has to be in the mix. And so, gold, you know, surprisingly, right, gold didn't help us really yeah, at all no. with inflation. And, you know, normally you would think, oh, precious metals, inflation, you know, perfect. Nope. Right. Yeah, I've said I've said many a time gold should be trading at about five thousand dollars an ounce if it were right. to have been any meaningful return. Yeah, to, to, right. to have actually done what we expected to do in right. in the environments we should have done. You know, part of our impetus when we built what we built was we we played out the hypothetical scenario of what did we think was the worst thing that could happen, and we kind of came up with this idea of you know, and, and heavens forbid this should ever happen, but like a nuclear explosion in a western city, mm-hmm. and we were like, well, that's going to be a bad day. Should should that ever happen? So that happen, and you know, we didn't realize that what we built was actually you know pandemic proof and, and, and great recession and proof. great recession proof. And right. so all the, it wasn't even that, intended. Yeah, the, the 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 idea, and we haven't really talked about what we what we do. We've talked about maybe why, and, and mm-hmm. the why really is that we wanted something that wouldn't require Bernard and I to be able to. Uh, do research, glean information, extract a position, and then deploy capital in a way that was going to benefit from us being correct. What we wanted to do was build something defensive that if things went terribly wrong, we had a firm grip on what the losses would be. Mm-hmm. But if things went well, we participated fully, or at least to, to a measured extent, uh, based on client risk tolerance as to what that upside might might future come. And so we, we've adopted the idea that we're completely agnostic as to market you know, yeah. macros. We, If you ask me in February, let's say March of 2020, when we're just in the thick of the initial part of the pandemic starting mm-hmm. and the market had declined like 28% in, 30, in 17 trading days or something, right. yeah. you know, should we go to cash? My brain would say, absolutely. You know, <laughs> yeah. let's say My heart would say, absolutely, right? My passion would tell me, get the hell out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. Um, but my brain told me, no, 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 no. We've, we've already prepared for this. We've got the yeah. positions in place. We don't have to do a thing except just sit. And that's exactly what panned out and, and worked out really well for us. So the why of what we built this for is so that clients don't ever have to call us and be in a, in a concerned place. They should know going into the future that if things don't pan out well, We've all agreed as to how bad it's going to be for that. And it, and we don't want to somehow turn left and go onto a dark alley we didn't expect to get going down and then get ourselves beat up down that dark alley. So that that was really the the, the formative thing for us. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out the how is actually remarkably easy. And this is the part that makes us kind of frustrated that 
you don't have to be an option geek or even a quant person, but you do have to know a little bit of math. And so the math part is this, uh, we've, we've taken, instead of shopping around for a bunch of different asset allocation pieces that you know, are hopefully going independently, moving up and down, we, we literally just tossed it out and said, okay, what if we put, just for argument's sake, 90% of a client's portfolio into treasuries, short duration treasuries, that thing that you know back to when you were 18 years old, yes. you can't succeed with that long-term, right? right? If we're going to try and get a market-based return with the 10%, that's our risk capital. Mm-hmm. We can't just invest it in stocks because stocks won't return enough. No. There won't, there won't be enough return. So what can we do? What, what else is there? Well, and it turns out it's options. If we take a small allocation, relatively small allocation, actually relatively large when you consider you know, what, what, what other people might consider a use of options, but a relatively small relative to the portfolio allocation to options, and we don't pick individual stocks, we just you know, use it as an index like the S&P 500, and we, and we have that historical evidence that tells us that the markets go up more than they go down, um, and we, we basically just attach our options to that engine, then here's what we know going in. We can lose 100% of our option allocation if the market doesn't do what we want it to do. But that's all we can lose is whatever we've spent on the option. Mm-hmm. And there's no there's no other component. And I, again, if we if we take the idea that the treasuries are likely to be able to pay off, you know, let's say highly likely, but not guaranteed. I mean, they're guaranteed by the U.S. government, which is you know mm-hmm. still potentially fallible. But if we get into a situation where the U.S. government can't pay back its short term debt, yeah. we are all in. Uh, world yeah, War. that's right. So, that that's kind of my mantra. It has been for a long, long time. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be. I mean, I wouldn't have a lot of faith in what the value of Tesla would be if the U.S. Treasury is, is not able yeah. to pay off their balance. So, uh, no offense, Elon, but you know, just saying, yeah. you know, any other stock for that matter. So, so that's the idea. And then if you if you consider that. The idea of measuring that risk, if if we want to put 5% of the portfolio into options and 95% in treasuries or 10% into options and 90% into treasuries or 85 in treasuries and 15 in options, you can dial up or down the amount of relative and known risk that a client's going to take. And each incremental amount that you put additional into options just increases the engine, the horsepower for the potential mm-hmm. performance. Uh, that's it in a nutshell. And we don't, yeah. we don't have to be a... Uh, a quantity person to understand that if if the market goes up, you'll get your treasury return plus some return from the options. The market goes down, you'll get your treasury return and you'll lose the options. That's that. And, yeah. and with that structure, you can have an uncapped exposure to the markets. Um, and now again, participation rates will vary based on how much risk you're prepared to take. But it's it's very understandable, um, at least that we think it is. So that that's yeah. kind of our... Mm. What do you say, Bernard? Our mission, yeah, mantra is to just yeah. get this idea out there. Is they just educate people? Really? There's another way to look at this uh, opportunity to to structure a portfolio. So it's, just, it's the mathematics of it. You know, yeah. if if ten percent of your portfolio can make one hundred percent for sake of discussion, sure. then it means that your your overall portfolio will be up ten percent. And if the ninety percent, let's assume the ninety percent does zero, and if the ninety percent does anything, that's just going to be on top of. So right. that's the basic premise of the, the mathematics of it, you know. Sure. And then just a brief, you know, thought about the buffered ETFs and those kind of things. Now the the buffers, anyway, the ones that I'm familiar with, have a 10, 15, 20, even thirty percent. Um, 
let's say, uh, skip, you skip the losses. So if the market is down 10%, you have a 10% buffer, your loss is zero. The, the, the challenge I find with that is that if you've bought your 10% buffer and the market is headed down past 37% losses, well, now you're in for 27% loss, again, with no bottom in sight. And so you, you've kind of skipped the first 10, but not necessarily solved the problem of a, a client bailing out of a, of a strategy or a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you've done a bigger number, like a 30% buffer, and the market is, you've obviously got a person in that who's very risk averse. And if you've breached that 30% buffer and you're headed down 37%, let's say, well, that person's going to come unglued too because they're not even prepared for the 7% loss. <laughs> right. But in exchange for that, they've capped what they can earn because the 30% buffer is going to come with a very modest cap in what they can earn going on the front end. So if we switch it around and say, okay, let's prepare to take the first losses, you know, and realize that you can't be an equity investor without being prepared to have some kind of loss right. or some volatility in portfolio. But we can participate in the first part of the loss, but not the big part, the unknown part. Scary. That's what you try and put a, a damper. Yeah. No, it's an interesting concept. I'm not, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't know anybody else that's doing it exactly that way. I mean, I do know some people that that do options trading, but I I don't, you know, that especially talking about a 90-10. I know I'd love to know more. I'm I'm sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. we can certainly talk offline, and yeah. uh, that's what we're out here doing, basically, Doug, is, is just having conversations with advisors, sure. um, and we we understand that we don't expect you to go to option school. <laughs> you're welcome to. Again, I've just we've just given you the recipe. It's, right. It is. It is. I see. And in well, our I mean, minds, it's, you know, it's, it's more advisors. Like something up and I need it, right. to at least investigate more, and because if I mean, if you can do. I'll just I'll just say this, not necessarily even as an advertisement. So just for listeners, I'm not being paid to say this, but I mean, it just it sounds like, you know, if you've really figured that out, I mean, it just sounds like a really good uh, system that that at least for me as an advisor, I'd say is worth me knowing more about. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that very much. That's basically our. Our wish is that uh, more advisors look into these kind of things. I think we're getting a lot of money going into buffered ETFs, and it's got an interesting appeal, uh, but it's still going to end up at the end if things get... Again, Bernard and I are not concerned about a 15% sell-off or a 9% sell-off. That's really kind of... You have to be prepared for that from a volatility perspective. Um, But we're really concerned about a 42% sell-off and... You know the the math of gains and losses does not favor the losses because yeah. if you're a math geek, you know that you know ten percent decline takes eleven percent to recover. Right. Fifty percent decline takes a hundred percent return to recover. Right. So you just can't let these those holes get that bigger. You're you're and we're also you know bullish long term. We're bullish. We know we're going to recover from a fifty percent loss, but it might take five years, you know, or longer, and you're just never going to get that time back. And so if we can keep clients at a level where the losses are manageable or measured, and then we have a better chance of getting forward outcomes. So, yeah, no, well, I think we've, we've, uh, we've spent quite a good time here um, yeah. kind of uncovering your experience with investing and our kind of approach to this. I mean, was there anything that you wanted to add that, that we haven't asked you about? No, I don't think so. It's nothing about me. I mean, I just, in some ways I'd, I'd love to know more about, what you all do, but I think uh, if I started asking questions, we'd we'd add too much to the time. So you know, we yeah. either have to do something offline or 
or something like that. So that's your choice. Well, Doug, thanks so much for joining us today. And we'll uh, circle back around and answer any questions we can and see if we can help you. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's good meeting you all. Thanks. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP.